if we were to take the Psalms and preach as we do every other book consecutively through, it would take probably eight or nine years. It's 150 chapters, and it would be a very long time in one book of the Bible. Now, that is not wrong. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, teaching, correction, rebuke, exhortation, that kind of thing. However, as the elders think about what is most helpful for us as a body, there are things in other places of Scripture that we also need as we go through life, as we encounter different circumstances. So when we take three months of the year and we preach through the Psalms, that gives us opportunity not only to be blessed by this songbook of God's people, but we also have opportunity then for the rest of the year to be encouraged by other places in Scripture. We try to take a balanced approach to how we feed the congregation from the Word of God. So taking it three months at a time rather than start to finish has been a good way for us to benefit from the teaching and the example of the Psalms while also hearing from the rest of God's Word. Now the second reason would be that this collection of songs and prayers, and that's mostly what the Psalms are. They are songs and they are prayers. It gives us language to use as we walk through the different circumstances of our lives. The Psalms are usually either loved or avoided (laughs) because they use language that is often uncomfortable for us. The pouring out of one's heart, the the direct uh, language for God saying what is going on, the expression of all the emotions that we face as God's people, but I'm saying that that is a benefit for us. No matter where we are, whether you are in the midst of extreme or long-term suffering, then we have Psalm 46 and 34 and 91. Or maybe you have joy, you have expression, you want to give thanks to God, then go to the 140s. And all of those Psalms give articulation to how we express thankfulness to God. You get the picture, right? For every season of the believer's life, the Psalms give us language and expression. It's not always easy to express to God what we're feeling. You think it would be, but it's not. And so one of the benefits of learning the Psalms is that we learn real language for real life. Now the third, and this is probably the most compelling reason for me at least as we preach through the Psalms, is that the Psalms are Christological. Meaning that as we read the Psalms, we should be looking for and seeing the Messiah. Now, of course, in the immediate context, they wouldn't have put the pieces together that it was Jesus of Nazareth, whom we know is the Christ, the Messiah, but the Psalms are messianic in nature, meaning they should point us forward to the person and the work of the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Don't quote me on this. Pause the recording so this doesn't go on the internet. Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked, how many of the Psalms are messianic? And he said, 150. All of them, because all of them point in some way to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this today in Psalm 24. I mean, Jesus is everywhere in this psalm, and I am so excited to show you what I have seen this week. So that's enough introduction. That's why we do this. 
so that we learn the language, so that we see Christ, and so that we are helped by the teaching here. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 24, and we will read this beautiful articulation of the King together. Psalm 24, starting in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and in the power of your Spirit. We are a Trinitarian people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we thank you, triune God, that you have seen fit to rescue those who are stuck and dead in sin and to make us your children. We praise you, Lord, for the sacrifice of the Messiah, Jesus who laid down his life for his generation, for his people. We thank you for the work of your spirit that now applies the finished work of Jesus to the heart of everyone who has faith in Christ. And so, God, this morning, we want to see your word clearly. We want to be encouraged. We come here, Lord, in need for you to do a work in our heart. And so, would you come and in your kindness in your mercy, Lord, speak to us through your word. Our hearts have been prepared through worship, through the reading of your word, and now I ask that you would minister to us through the preaching of your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may remember from the last, for sure last year, as the psalms we covered in probably the last two years, that many of the psalms we've seen between 1 and 23 deal with a kingly figure. A figure who is a representative. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the one who rules over the people of God. And we see in the first 23 psalms the way that this king will respond to and rule over the people of God. He is God's instrument oftentimes, of justice or of peace or whatever. Sometimes this kingly figure can be applied directly to David. Sometimes it gets applied to one who is in David's line, who is yet to come. And oftentimes, as we have seen, that this kingly figure is none other than the Messiah as an ultimate fulfillment of these texts that we have seen. Well, this morning, Psalm 24 continues 
with this kingly theme by telling us three things that we need to know about this king. Now, I am using king synonymously with the Lord because that's what the text does. If we scroll down here to verses 8 and verse 10, we are told explicitly that the king is the Lord. So I don't think I'm stepping out of bounds here by using this kind of kingly language. And what we're going to see in our structure today, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that the Lord is the creator king. In verses 3 to 6, we're going to see that he is the holy king. There are requirements to be in the presence of this king. And then in 7 to 10, we're going to see that the Lord is the coming king. So that's our structure for this morning, and let's get right to it. Starting in verse 1. David begins with an assertion that the earth, now he's talking physical, literal earth, and everything in it belongs to the Lord. When it says in verse 1 that the earth is the Lord and its fullness, we should see that as complete, total, no exceptions ownership. That God has claim to everything in the world And this is a demonstration of his authority. The point is that there is not a single place, there is not a single organism, there is not a single structure in the universe that cannot trace its origin and its ownership back to God. It's kind of an unpopular opinion and has been for some time to say that everything in the world, really everything, can trace origin and ownership back to God, that contradicts much of the mainstream thought about how you and I got to be here, doesn't it? But the Bible is crystal clear. This is not talking about theistic evolution. This is not talking about the survival of the fittest. This is talking about almighty creator God saying, let it be, and it was. God is the creator and owner of all things. Now, when we talk about the ownership, and that's what verse 1 is talking about, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and everything in it, if that is the claim to authority and ownership, then verse 2 tells us the reason or the support behind that statement. And I've already given it away. The reason that it is right to say that God owns everything is because He created it. He has rights as creator over everything. Now, the verbiage of verse 2 should help us to understand that the language here is that of power. It is foundation. It is stability. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Founded and established are big, powerful words to communicate this aspect of God's creative power. And this is just one aspect, right? There are many facets to God's creative power. If we remember back to Psalm 8, we saw a different perspective on the creative power of God when David says, I think it's verse 3, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. What is he talking about there? He's talking about intricate, detailed, creative power, right? The work of God's fingers has created all of this stunning universe that we see. That's not really the case in Psalm 24. It's not talking 
intricate, delicate work. It is talking bricks and boulders. It is talking foundational work that God founded and established the world. This is meant to communicate something to us, and it is raw, creative power. We see something really similar in Psalm 104. Listen for similar language. Psalm 104.3, God lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He set the earth on its foundation so that it can never be moved. What kind of God takes the planet we live in and sets it there so that it is immovable? A God who has creative, unlimited power. That's what we are seeing here in verses 1 and 2. Now I want you to notice something about this pair of verses. What we are seeing here is the combination of God's power and authority. Power and authority. We see God's authority in verse 1. He's saying, this is mine. I own everything. It all belongs to me. And his authority is grounded on the truth that he is powerful to create, right? That's what we see in verse 2. The power to create, the power to sustain, the power to set the earth on its foundation so that it is never moved. And I point this out because both of these things are necessary for God to be God. Say it another way. If you remove either his authority or his power, we have big problems and so does he. Both of these things are necessary. So what if God, let's do a little thought experiment here, what if God claimed to own everything? It's all mine. But he had no power to back that up. I'm sure we've all dealt with somebody at some time, and, and kids are good for this, but I've known plenty of adults as well. Someone who talks a big game, who talks about what they've done, what they own, what they've accomplished, but when it comes right down to it, they don't actually have those things. They don't have the power to back up that kind of speech. As the Apostle John would say, their mouth is writing checks, their body can't cash. Okay, that's a paraphrase, okay? Don't go looking for that in the Apostle John. You get the point. Or, okay, put it the other way. What if God had just this raw, unlimited power, but no authority to use it? No theater to display the greatness of his works. Do you see the problem? Do you see why both of these things have to go together? Verses 1 and 2, stating his authority, his ownership. Verse 2, stating his power. They must go together. Because God has both the authority and the power to create and sustain. And that should be a comfort for us. Now I have two more questions before we move on from these first, first two verses. The first question comes from verse 2. And here it is. Why do you think that the Bible, the totality of the Bible, is so insistent on telling us about the creatorship of God? The fact that he is the one who made everything we see. Why is this such a repeated theme in the scriptures? Fifty verses 
in the Bible tell us about God's creative power? 50. So I got thinking about this and I looked up a few other statistics, if you can call them that. There are 19 references to God's creation, 49 references to the fact that God created, 18 uses of the phrase God made, and the words he formed appear 46 times in the Bible. Why is there this relentless push to communicate that God is the creator of all things? Even as we look forward into the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter 4, we get a glimpse and we hear the song that is being sung before the throne of God. And here's what it is. It's Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. So even in heaven, in the perfect presence of God, the repeated theme is the creative power of God. Why? That's the question I'm asking. Why is this such a pervasive theme in the scriptures? I think it's a parable. Meaning, I think God's creation of physical things is meant to tell us his ability to create spiritual things. I think it's the gospel. And here's what I mean. If we understand that God has the power and the authority to create everything physical around us, we should understand that he has the power and the authority to create spiritual life as well. Here's what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's referring to the physical creation of the world. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and then he switches to spiritual things, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see what's going on there? Paul looks at the physical creation and says, okay, if God can do that, then we should have no problem believing that he can bring spiritual life where there was none before. The emphasis on the creative power of God to make everything we see should be a parable that helps us understand he is able to bring spiritual life where there was none before. And I think this encourages us in several ways, but just think about how many of you are right now praying for an unbelieving family member, friend, associate. You don't have to raise your hand, but I bet almost every one of us are. What hope do you have that there will be a flicker of life, that there will be spiritual renewal? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he has power and authority to bring into existence things that formerly did not exist. So keep praying. Keep trusting that God is the one who can bring about spiritual life. That's a good encouragement for us. Now last thing, before we move on from here, I want to know, what do these two verses have to do with Jesus? I said at the beginning that these are Christological psalms. They have to do with Christ. 
So how does Jesus fit into verses 1 and 2? You should be able to answer this. He doesn't just fit in. He is the dominant theme of verses 1 and 2. Let me read you just three brief New Testament texts. And Josh already stole my thunder with one of these, but I'll forgive him this time. Three New Testament texts, and you will see crystal clear that Jesus is the creator king. John 1. In the beginning, we should all say this together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and here it is. All things were created through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us and our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the world. Hmm. That sounds like Jesus was the one creating stuff, doesn't it? Okay, now here's Colossians 1, the most explicit. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. So tell me, who is the creator king in Psalm 24, 1 and 2? Say it. Jesus. It's Jesus. He is all over the Psalms, and I don't want you to miss this. Now, let's keep going. It just gets better from here, believe me. This is such a tremendous psalm. Verses 3 through 6 show us that the Lord is the holy king. The Lord is the holy king. The question that is being asked in verse 3 Look in your text, look at verse 3. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? What is being asked there is, who can be in the presence of God? That's the question. Okay? The, the mountain of God, the hill of the Lord, in this context would have probably been understood as Jerusalem, as Mount Zion, the place where the king, the anointed of God dwells. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Psalms, to Psalm chapter 2, God says this in 2.6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Or it could be a reference to Mount Horeb, or we know it as Mount Sinai, where God comes down, and meets with Moses in all his burning holiness, and he gives him the law. Either way, the hill of the Lord signifies God's holy presence. He is there, whether through his representative king or through his own holy presence. So in light of the revelation that God created all things, that he is the creator king, the next logical question becomes, okay, who can stand before this king? If he is the one who has authority and power to create out of nothing, who can stand in his presence? Who could make that journey? Well, David gives us the answer. He gives us four characteristics of the man who can dwell in the presence of this holy king. Two positive, in other words, two things you should do, and two negative. Look at verse four with me. Here's the answer to the question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, hands, of course, refer to the external things, the observable life of a man, while the heart refers to the internal, the emotions and the motivations that guide and 
give influence to the decisions of this man. Meaning, do you get what's going on there? External, internal. In order to dwell in the presence of God, there must be a complete transformation of the person. You getting that as we see this? It's not just enough to say, well, I'm going to do the external things. I'm going to clean up on the outside so that my hands are finally free from all that dirt. That's not enough. And it's also not enough to say, well, I I have a good heart. I have the right intentions. But there's no observable change on the outside. This must be a total inside-out change. So how does this happen? Well, of course, we know that the only hope for change is that God transforms a life. It is his power. Amen to that? But how does this happen? What means does he use in order to purify and to cleanse? Well, we've already seen this combination of clean and pure in the Psalms, haven't we? Turn back to the left two pages maybe to Psalm 19. And I think we get a little bit of a hint here as to how God does this cleansing and purifying work. Psalm 19 and verse 8, read along with me and listen for those words. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, pure and clean. Okay, so if we go back to Psalm 24, we can ask, how are hands cleansed? Well, if we use Psalm 19, we say that clean hands come through the fear of the Lord, understanding who he is, his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his love, and and using that knowledge of who he is to keep us from sin. Once we truly know who God is, we enter into this process of the fear of God and the sanctification that Josh told us about and we just sang about, and gradually our desire to sin decreases. Slowly, yes, but it does decrease. Because the one whom God justifies, he sanctifies. So to purify the hands, to cleanse the hands, means we need to fear God. Now what about the heart? What about a pure heart? Well, Psalm 19 tells us that the commandment of God is pure. Now commandment is just one of the synonyms that's used there for the law of God, the word of God, the statutes of God, the commandment of God. It's all referring to this, the Bible, the Word of God. So, if we are to have a pure heart, we need to become a Psalm 1 kind of man. Now, I know I'm jumping around to all kinds of Psalms, I'm sorry, but you remember Psalm 1. He meditates on the law of God. He delights in the law of God. It becomes his very life. And when the word of God dwells in us richly, it will have a purifying effect on a person's life. Now, the second pair of characteristics given are negative, telling us what the one who stands in God's presence will not do. Look at the end of verse 4. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, The phrase, lift up your soul, is a Hebrew idiom for setting your affections on something. 
okay? Setting your desires, focusing all the intent of your heart on that. That's what it means to lift up your soul. So what it's saying here is that the one who ascends the hill of the Lord, who dwells in his presence, will not set his affections on anything less than God himself. Jim Hamilton says this, one of my favorite Psalms commentators. The man worthy of ascending Yahweh's mountain and standing in his holy place does not desire what should not be desired. He does not worship what is not worthy of worship. He does not seek satisfaction where there is none to be found. And he does not try to find joy from what can only give him pain. Main takeaway here, don't be fooled by cheap imitations. There's only one thing that can satisfy the human heart, and it is not you, and it is not your stuff. It is God alone who can satisfy the heart. Therefore, the warning is, don't lift up your soul, don't set your desires on things that will ultimately leave you unsatisfied. It's not a sin to want to be satisfied. It's not a sin to want to be happy. That's what God desires of us. The catch <clears throat> is that we find our happiness and our satisfaction in God alone. Now, finally, not swearing deceitfully. That should be pretty easily understood. This man does not lie. He does not say one thing while having the intention of doing another. He is honest, reliable, trustworthy. All of these are characteristics of God that his people are called to imitate. And these are the four characteristics that David gives for the one who would stand in the presence of God. Now, if this happens, notice I said if, if this happens, what is the outcome of this way of living? Look at verses 5 and 6. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now I want you to notice something, what's happening in this text. There is a movement from individual pronouns to corporate language. The word generation is used two different ways in the Bible. It can either mean those alive at a certain time, or it can refer to a group of people who are commonly associated, okay? And the second meaning is what's going on here in the word generation. But notice what's happening. Look at 4, 5, and 6. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he will receive blessing from the Lord. And then we get to verse 6, and suddenly we're corporate. It's talking the whole generation. If you remember, the same thing happened in Psalm 1, right? We had the singular blessed man, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on the law. He is like a tree. All he does prospers. And then at the end of the psalm, we have the congregation of the righteous, a multitude. It's a movement from one righteous man to the greater context of the covenant community. We've seen this other places in the Psalms, especially in the teens, where it goes from how the king acts and operates to how that affects the greater covenant community. You might have remembered me saying this last summer, as goes the king, so goes the people. Okay? And I think that's what's happening here in Psalm 24. 
I draw attention to this because I think what we are seeing is not a list for you to keep so that you can dwell in the presence of God. Don't come away from this psalm this morning going, oh, okay, cool. If I just do verses three and four to the best of my ability, then God will be obligated to accept me into his presence and I can finally dwell with him. That is not the point of Psalm 24. This is not a to-do list. I draw attention to this because I think what we are seeing is a pointer to a greater man, a greater individual who will have clean hands, who will have a pure heart, who will ascend the hill to die for his generation, thus bringing salvation and blessing for his people. <clears throat> what we are seeing is a foreshadowing of the curse of Adam being reversed. And this foreshadowing finds its fulfillment in the man, Jesus Christ. He was in verses 1 and 2. He is definitely in 3 to 6. I want you to listen to what Paul said in Romans 5, 18. You can turn there or you can just listen. Listen for what I just said, the movement from one to many, one to many. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, this is Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now here comes Psalm 24. Are you ready for this? So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. One to many. One to many. Are you seeing that? Do you see that in Psalm 24? Do you see Jesus in Psalm 24? That by his singular obedience, he has clean hands, he has a clean heart, he will receive blessing from the Lord. The congregation, the generation is blessed because of his obedience. This is not a ladder for you to climb. This is an arrow pointing you to Christ who obeyed for you so that as a part of his generation, as a part of his people, you can experience righteousness and blessing from him. And of course, this is such good news because when we are united to Jesus by faith, apart from any work we can do, we receive everything that is his. So if he's the one who has the right to ascend the hill of the Lord, if he's the one that stands in the holy place of God, if he is the one who has pure hands and a clean heart, we now, by faith in him, receive all of the blessings that he earns. By one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. This is Jesus in Psalm 24. This is not just a list for you to complete or for me to complete. Now, <clears throat> let's look at the last four verses of Psalm 24. What we're seeing here in 7 through 10 is a celebration of the coming or returning would be a better word, the returning king. Now, depending on when historically the people of God read this psalm, it would have very different connotations, very different associations based on when in redemptive history they read 7 through 10. 
in the immediate context, in David's day, this scene of the gates being thrown open and the doors being lifted and all these things would have reminded them of when David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And what a celebration that was, that after being taken captive by the Philistines, it is finally returned to Mount Zion, to where the presence of God is promised to dwell. And what a parade, what a celebration that was. That would have been what the people were reminded of. Or think about how many times David returned to Jerusalem victorious from battle. And they would say, here comes the king, mighty in battle. But if you fast forward in the history of redemption, say to the time of exile, this would have very different meaning for the people. I mean, at that point, their kings have failed them. They haven't followed God. They've allowed the people to be taken into captivity and to led off into exile. So if they would have read this at that time, the idea of a king coming back in glory and there being this big celebration would have been like the furthest thing from their minds. The king's failed us. I'm not going to get excited about some returning king. They've all been dummies. They failed. It depends on when you read this as to what it means. So what about you and I? When we read about the return of this king mighty in battle, victorious over his enemies, what should you and I think when we read 7 through 10? We've already seen Jesus in 1 and 2. We've seen him in 3 through 6. Is he still here in 7 through 10? Yes. Yes, he is. Only now, we aren't looking backwards to remember something. We are looking forward. One day soon, the king of glory is coming back. Probably sooner than we think. The Lord of glory, mighty in battle. And at that time, every head will be lifted. The gates of every heart will be blown open. In other words, there will be nothing to hinder the return of the king. And when he comes, the Bible tells us, every eye will see him, every ear will hear him, every knee will bow before him and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the king of glory. And I want you to hear that this morning, not as a threat, but as a hope-filled anticipation for what's coming. I know the world is a mess. I know Minnesota's liberal. I know sin is pervasive and there's all kinds of reasons for us to get all nervous and anxious about what's going on. But let me ask you something. Is that how the Christian should live their life? Should we live in some sort of gloomy depression because the world is so bad around us? You have to recognize that. I'm not saying to bury your head. I'm saying look at Psalm 24 and look at Jesus. He is coming. He's coming. And when he does, all of the things that vex us, all of the things that cause us consternation, all of the effect of sin will be reversed because the king of glory will return. 
This is something not to dread. Do not dread the coming of Jesus. This is, as the Apostle Paul tells us, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Yeah, the world is bad. Sure, it might get worse, but we have Christ and we have the hope of Christ. So don't walk around with this gloom and depression because, oh, the world is so bad, it's just getting worse, and I don't know what to do. Yes, you do know what to do. Trust in Jesus. He is the creator king who has all power and authority. He is the holy king who ascended the hill for his people, and he is the coming king. And if you eagerly await his return, that day will come, not as a judgment and not as a dread, but as a consummation, a completion of all things. And I just want you to know this Jesus. I want you to know his power. I want you to know his authority. And I want you to know his tender love for each one of you. Let's pray. What a blessing, Father, that you have revealed your redemptive plan in your word. Thank you for the way that Jesus transforms this psalm, that we don't have to read this and go, oh, what a heavy burden for us to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, and there's all these things we have to do and do and do. No, no, all we have to do is trust in the finished work of Christ who went to the cross bearing our sin and shame so that we can stand in your presence. Oh God, press this reality into us. Don't let us get distracted by the things that go on around us, but help us to hope in Jesus and in his soon return and in the life that he has given to us now. Lord, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today, and one day he will come back. Make it soon. But in the meantime, God, strengthen us to live lives that are dependent upon your grace and dependent upon the work of Christ so that we are a light in a dark world. Don't let us succumb to depression and gloom, but help us to hope in Jesus, the creator king, the holy king, the returning king. I ask all of these things in his name. Amen. Amen. I don't know.